If you have your copy of Scripture this morning, we're in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Book of Hebrews chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 21 this morning of Hebrews chapter 13. I would invite you to turn there. I'll be reading this morning from the English Standard Version. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, take this word, penetrate our hearts and lives with it. Whatever it is that we need to hear from you today, may our ears be open and we be ready to obey. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you about the God of peace who equips us. We often try to show ourselves to be strong and self-sufficient in all we do. However, the reality is that every one of us is weak and needy. At the root of this attitude of self-sufficiency and strength and and these sorts of things is pride, but it's still kind of strange to observe it. Let me give you an example. We often act like we are going to live forever. And that's our attitude. Many times, even though every single last one of us is physically frail, even if we're in good health, we're we're still physically frail. I, as some of you know, I run five miles a day. I do CrossFit around 30 minutes a day. Physically, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. But the truth of the matter is, I am physically frail. Every single breath that I take is dependent on God. I'm not in control of my life. I'm not in control of the number of my days. And no matter how hard I try, the reality is God controls my days. And any day and at any time, He could say, Your time's up. You see, we try to be self-sufficient. We try to be strong, but we're not in control. Not only do we experience physical frailty, but we also experience financial frailty. Now, some people might say, well, have you seen my 401k? It's doing pretty good this year. Or the investments that I have, or have you seen my stock portfolio, or my retirement income or whatever it might be. I'm not financially frail. 
Perhaps someone would say, do you know how much money I make or how great of a job I have? But listen, I don't care how financially secure you think you are. The truth is we are financially frail and at any moment God can take away everything. Jesus warned about a man that thought he was financially secure whose soul would be required of him that very night. We are financially frail. Church, you can pick any area of your life that you wish. And the conclusion will always be the same. We're weak. We have vulnerabilities. And we have needs. And we are frail. We're emotionally frail. One day we're doing great. And the next day maybe tragedy strikes. Just like they did to Job. And perhaps you're emotionally shattered. We know what that's like. There's absolutely nothing in this life in which we can base our security except for God. This is how God has designed it on purpose so that we understand that we need to trust in God for everything. And despite this obvious truth that we need to trust in God for all things, we still run headlong to find security in things. And things will never give us security. In the book of Revelation, we read about a church that thought they had it all together. In fact, this is what they said. We're rich. We've become wealthy. And we are in need of nothing. But you know what God said? He had a different view. He said, they did not know that they were wretched and poor and miserable and blind. And naked. How in the world could a church think they were rich, wealthy, and in need of nothing, and yet God sees them as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? It happens because we refuse to see ourselves how God sees us. When we see ourselves how God sees us, when when we recognize that we desperately need God and we cry out to Him, He floods us with His abounding grace and mercy and blessings. And when we come to God on, on, on empty, recognizing our need, He fills us. But when we come to God thinking that we are in need of nothing, we leave empty. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the only requirement for receiving the grace of God is to come to Him as desperate and needy, as a sinner, and ask for mercy, and we receive grace. He delights to provide for those who really wholly trust in Him. Now the author of Hebrews has just asked them to pray for him. He's just done that before these verses. And then he turns around and he prays for his readers. Now, I believe in this prayer, what we see is that the God of peace equips. He equips us with everything we need for salvation through Jesus Christ and equips us with everything we need to live for his glory. This prayer is a literal praying back to God. His promises. God has ordained prayer as a way for us to lay hold of His promises. It is through prayer that we acknowledge how needy we are and, and that our God is mighty to provide. And when He does provide, God gets the glory because we understand that He did it, not us. Now the first thing I want us to see this morning in this passage of Scripture is this. God is. God is. 
If we look at the beginning of this benediction, the author says, Now may the God. And I believe it's vital. Because everything begins with God. There is nothing that is before God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. We read in the beginning was God. Nothing is before God. Nothing is above God. And God will give an account to no one. God is not sustained by anything. God is not improved by anyone. And there is absolutely nothing that contributes to the value of God. God is of supreme value. And everything that holds any value in our universe is dependent upon God's value. Anything that has any value only has its value because of God. I want you to wrap your mind around this. God is everything. I did not say that God is in everything. I said that He is everything. What I am saying is that nothing in our universe can truly be known apart from from knowing the value of God. And here's what we must understand. The value of God is infinitely greater in value than anything in our universe. It's like... Have you ever like gone to a place where they do like gold mining and stuff like that? I don't know if you've ever done that, but sometimes when you go there, they always have a store. And in that store, they have these little gold flakes, right? And they're in a little vial of water or whatever and and you can buy them for like five bucks or something like that they're not super expensive because that gold's not really valuable because it's little gold flakes it's like comparing one of those that's worth pretty much nothing to a boulder of gold listen to god's word behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales behold he takes up the the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are counted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. Isaiah 40, 15 and 17. He's everything. I love what John Piper said. He said this, Stop thinking of God merely as the foundation of the building of your life because foundations are hidden, forgotten things. Foundations are taken for granted while people love the food of the kitchen and the sex in the bedroom and the family in the den. Too often, real gods of our lives while we pay token tribute to the unseen, unloved, uncelebrated, unexalted cement block foundation in the basement called God Almighty. God is not a God to be taken granted of. The heavens declare the glories of God. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans 11.36 The Bible is full of the presence of God. Not just an assumption of His existence. God is the creator of all things. He has created the universe for our enjoyment. And He is to be the center and the focus of all things, every single thing that you enjoy. God is to be the center and focus of it. I want you to stop and think of some of the things that you enjoy most in your life. And God is to be the center of that thing. You are supposed to say, I enjoy this, and the only reason I enjoy this is because God created it. 
God made it. God allowed it. He is supposed to be the focus of it. Brings back a new way to watch football. Or do the things you enjoy. He's to be the focus of our enjoyment. The center of everything. The very air that we breathe. Lord, thank you. Listen to what Charles Meisner wrote concerning Albert Einstein. He said this. He must have looked at what the preacher said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they just, and they were not, they were just not talking about the real thing. He simply felt that religions he had run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. Church may never be said of us, may never be so of any of us, may no one ever be able to say of us, we have not seen the glory of God. May we have the proper respect for the author of the universe. May our eyes always be looking Godward. And may our lives be so God-centered that people look at us and they know, they know that God is. And so our first point is, is just that. God is. Now, let's see that God equips us for salvation. Only a saving God can equip us for salvation. If God is not a saving God, then He is not an equipping God. God does not call us into salvation for you to do what He wants you to do in the Christian life by your own strength, but He has equipped you to live the life that He has called you to live. This is such an incredible encouragement because God has equipped us for salvation. Now, the author gives us five ways God equips us for salvation. So first, let's see that God reconciles. God reconciles. He says, now may the God of peace. God is a peace-filled and peace-making God. Behind the reality of God being a peace-making God is the fact that we are sinners alienated from God. People try to find peace with their souls through many different answers. They try all kinds of things. But peace will only come through us being reconciled to God. Every person, since they were born, lives in rebellion against God. And our sinfulness makes us enemies of God because God is absolutely holy. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. James writes in James chapter 4 that to be friends with the world is to be hostile towards God. When the people are enemies towards God, they do not recognize their spiritual condition. They don't think that they're enemies of God because Satan has blinded them to the fact that they are enemies of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 
So they have no idea they're an enemy of God. They're walking through this life as enemies of God, blinded by the delusion that Satan has sent to them. And one of the first ways in which we know that God is at work in our heart, or anyone else's heart for that matter, is that you begin to see that you are sinful and that you are guilty before a holy God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. You understand that there's no possible way that you can atone for your own sin. That there's no way that you can be right before this holy God and you wonder if there's any way that you can possibly be made right with God. And that's the good news of the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel says to you, yes, Yes, you can be made right with the Holy God. Yes, you can be reconciled to God. That's why Jesus came. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You don't earn your reconciliation. You can't figure out a way to earn it. You don't earn peace with God. There's nothing that you can do that's going to earn peace with God. Everyone who's trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior is already at peace with God. And this is the foundation of our Christian faith. Not only does God reconcile, but God has provided a shepherd for the sheep. God has provided a shepherd for the sheep. That's what it says here. This is the only time in the book of Hebrews where Jesus is referred to as our shepherd. However, the metaphor of shepherd is used often of Jesus. In fact, Jesus used it to refer to himself. He said he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Listen, church, it's, it's been a privilege to, to pastor this church for over five years. But as probably every single one of you know, I am an imperfect shepherd. Some of you like to point that out to me sometimes. It's been a joy, but I'm imperfect. Jesus, who's the great shepherd, never loses any of his sheep. Ever. All the sheep that the Father gives to him, this is what Jesus, all the sheep that the Father has given to me, he will retain. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus. All the sheep the Father has given to me, I will give every single one of them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I don't know if you've been around sheep much. I have. They're pretty helpless. They can't survive without a shepherd. The shepherd guards the sheep against predators. 
He leads the sheep to pasture for them to rest and eat. He leads them to water. In fact, sometimes sheep get stuck on their back. And either from being too fat or their wool gets too heavy and they can't right themselves. And they'll eventually die. Because what happens is the grass and their stomach ferments and produces gas and they can't do nothing about it and they die if they're stuck on their back. It's not by accident that the Bible calls us sheep. Because it points out the obvious. Which is no matter how much we deny it, we can't survive without the good shepherd. God in his grace has provided a shepherd for the sheep. Now not only has he provided the shepherd, but then he goes on even further here in the passage of scripture. God has put the shepherd to death. For our sins. Through the book of Hebrews, we have had this continual contrast, right? Between the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrifices, and the sacrifice of Jesus. It's been a, a continual contrast. It's like, it seems like almost every sermon I, I have to bring this up. Because that's, that's, it keeps comparing. We've had that throughout the entire book of Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sins. Like the blood of Jesus does. God instituted the Old Old Testament sacrificial system as a temporary solution for sin. It wasn't the permanent solution. The Bible tells us that the payment for our sin is what? Death. And because God is a just God, God does not just overlook our sin. He doesn't say, oh, well, yeah, the payment for sin is death. I'm just going to overlook it. A penalty has to be paid. In Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 22, we saw that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The blood of animals could never totally atone for sin. The point is that what those sacrifices could never do, Jesus came along and did. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh. He perfectly obeyed the laws of God. And then he offered himself as the just payment for the sins of his people. Jesus paid the price. God put his own son, our shepherd, to death for our sins. God's word says, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all the God of peace 
has provided for us a way to have peace. Now listen. After you've been in heaven for a trillion years, you'll be no more forgiven than you are right now. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ. We cannot wrap our mind around it. In heaven a trillion years and you're just as forgiven as you are right now. Why? How does that happen? Because the blood of Jesus Christ pardons all our sin. Every single sin. And guess what? The blood of Jesus Christ is eternal. That's the whole point. The sin that you committed 20 years ago is forgiven. And the sin that you will commit 20 years from now is forgiven. Wow! It blows our mind. I was trying to have a conversation with my wife the other day. And sorry, I didn't tell her I was going to use this as a sermon illustration. So I'll get in trouble later. But... We were talking about this very thing, how God is not in time. He's outside of time. We can't wrap our mind around it. Your sins have been forever separated from you. Now, that doesn't mean you will never sin. Because we sin. You're constantly going to be battling sin. And that battle can be greatly discouraging. But God put His own Son to death for our sin. And you're pardoned if you know Christ as your Savior. But it doesn't stop there. We also must notice that God raises the shepherd from death, keeping His covenant. God raises the shepherd from death, keeping his covenant. This whole thing should blow our mind that God sees that we need reconciliation, that God provides a shepherd for the sheep to come, and then God takes that shepherd that he provided and puts that shepherd to death for our sins. And and then he raises the shepherd from death, keeping his covenant. Yes, there's a sense in which Jesus laid down his own life and took it up again by his own authority, as we read in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 18. But there's another sense in which the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 2.24, Acts 3.15, Acts 4.10, Acts 5.30, Ephesians 1.20 makes that clear. When it says the blood of the eternal covenant, it is connecting it with God bringing Jesus up from the dead. The resurrection is a confirmation that God accepted Jesus' death as a ratification of the new covenant in which he said, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The covenant is eternal. It will never not be validated. It will never be superseded. The shed blood of Jesus is the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the foundation of the Christian faith. If the resurrection is disproven, there's no basis for Christianity. This is what Paul says 
And he further says, if this is the case, then we should live for all the pleasure that we can possibly gain in this life if the resurrection is not true, because we have no hope. However, the witness of the apostles, whose lives were transformed overnight from a bunch of disillusioned and dejected men to bold witnesses for Christ, was based on the resurrection. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. And he taught them for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. He appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote about it. Christ promised a bodily return. And if, if this is just some sort of wishful thinking by a bunch of deluded people, then Christianity is utterly false. God gave us a shepherd. God put his shepherd to death. God raised that shepherd from the dead, proving that his death was acceptable, the acceptable sacrifice for our sins, and that his wrath, the wrath of God, was appeased, and justice had been satisfied. Finally, let's see this, that God has provided Jesus, our Lord. It's interesting because some translations end verse 20 with our Lord Jesus. While others have it in the middle of the verse, regardless, the great shepherd of the sheep is our Lord Jesus. And and the emphasis is on both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Jesus is a human name given as a perfect man. Jesus could die on the cross as a substitute for sinful humanity because he was perfect. Lord is the title given for the sovereign God. As God in the human flesh, the death of Jesus could do what the death of an animal could never do, permanently take away our sin. However, also notice that he says, that the author says, our Lord. The Bible is very clear that yes, Jesus is the Lord of all. He is not the Lord of all in the same way though. Let me illustrate it for you. Jesus is the Lord of some people in the sense that he is their judge who will condemn them. He is the Lord of others in the sense of being their Savior. There's only two options. There's not a third option. There is no in-between. If Jesus is not your Lord personally because you've never trusted Him as your Savior from your sin and you've never submitted to Him as the rightful sovereign ruler of your life, then you will one day face Him as judge. And He will on that day impose His just penalty on you which will be eternal separation from the love of God. Today is the day of salvation. Not later, but today. While you may find mercy at the cross, after you die or when Jesus returns, it will be too late. Because then it's time for judgment. And you will bend your knee. You will either bend it now or you'll bend it later. And those who have not submitted to Him will later cry out, 
to the mountains and the rocks, as Revelation tells us. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6.16 So we've seen that God is. That God equips us for salvation. He doesn't just save us and leave us to our own devices, but He equips us, which leads us to the third point this morning. God equips us to live for His glory. God equips us to live for His glory. I want you to look at verse 21. The very first word is equip. In the Greek, that word is op- in the optative mood. And you probably are thinking, well, big whoop de doo Because you probably don't know what that means. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm all super smart and I knew exactly what that meant. I looked it up in my software. <laughs> it means it is an expression or desire It's like saying, may the God of peace equip you. Or may the God of peace make you ready. Let me just say, it does not matter how diligent the pastor has been preparing for the message. It does not matter how faithfully he delivers that message. My duty's not done when I'm done preaching. I need to ask God to apply the message to the hearts of the people. That's what the author is doing. He's asking God to enable them to do what he's saying. So with that said, there are four areas in which God equips us to live for his glory. First, we're equipped in every good thing to do his will. We're equipped in every good thing to do his will. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will. I love the fact that God equips us to do His will. Now, we've had a few babies in our house. And when, when our babies were born, what we did is, is we brought them home from the hospital. And it worked out great because we showed them around the house. We said, there's the fridge. And here's the bathroom. So here's the shower and here's the sink. Here's your bedroom. We told them how to do everything. And we said, if you need anything, just let us know. And we'll see if we can help you out. Worked out great. We didn't do that because that would be absolutely ridiculous, right? Nobody does that. But sometimes we act like that's what God does. That's not what God does. God doesn't save us and then forget about us. That's not what He does. Listen to what Paul says. He who did not spare His own Son, God didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Did you hear that? That verse should cause us to stop and think real hard. Yes, evil man did kill Jesus in one sense. But it says, 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God put his own son to death for us. Psalm 22, 15. Isaiah 53, 4. Isaiah 53, 10. Acts 2, 23. Acts 4, 27, 28. God made the greatest provision for us while we were sinners. And he will provide everything we need to live for him and serve him for his glory, not our own glory. We are equipped in every good thing to do God's will. And to do God's will is to be like Jesus because Jesus came to do God's will, which he clearly proclaimed was his duty. This idea of becoming like Jesus, it's a lifelong process. And it's one that's never going to be complete in this life. But here's the point that we must get the exact same power. The exact same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that equips you and I to do God's will and to live for His glory. I I don't fathom why as Christians we walk around and run around and we act like God is powerless. This word equip is used for mending torn nets outside of the Bible. It was used for putting a bone back into place. It means that you are restoring something so that it can realize its intended purpose. Every single sinner is wounded and broken we can never put our lives back together make ourselves useful to the holy god of this universe we can't do it that's the beauty of it we can't do it but god does see god looks at our life he sees those areas that need mending and he mends them He sees those bones that need to be set and He sets them so they can heal. He does not do this so that we can run around living for ourselves and our own glory. But He does this so that in every good thing we do His will for His glory. So we're equipped in every good thing to do His will. And then we see that God will work in us that which is pleasing in His sight. He equips or restores us. Then He works in us. But this doesn't mean that you get to just sit back and do nothing. Saying, well, God's going to work in me. It's a passive process. I don't have anything I have to do. In fact, our text conveys what Paul wrote in Philippians 2. Where he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We are saved by the sovereign grace of God, not by anything we do. Both saving faith and repentance are gifts from God. They are not something that we stir up within us. Philippians 1.29, Acts 11.18, uh, 2 Timothy 2.25. Now, after we are saved, God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. So God is working in us. In fact, He's working in you right now if you know Christ as your Savior. 
If you are a believer, He's motivating you. He's empowering you to do His will. Yet at the same time, you have to do something. Right? You work in cooperation with God. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verses 8 through 10, puts it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. So faith and grace, both gifts of God, not as a result of works. You can't work your way there so that no one can boast. So it's not work. So you can't go around going, oh, look at me. Right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And these works, it says, were prepared beforehand. Why? So that we would walk in them. God saved us by his grace. He prepares beforehand the very works that we are to do for him. However, we have to walk in them. The aim of our lives every single day, right when we get out of bed, throughout the day, beginning with our thoughts, should be, God, I want to please you because of the abundant grace that you have shown me. Lord, empower me today to do what is pleasing in your sight. God puts within every believer the will or desire to do that which is good. And then, right? He doesn't stop there. If you're a believer, God puts within you the desire. Non-believers, they may want to do stuff good, but it's not for the glory of God. They do stuff good for their own glory. But every believer, God puts within you the desire to do those things which is good and to accomplish His will and then He empowers you by His strength to actually do it. You know what happens? Flesh gets in the way. Well, I can't do that. I know, God, you're telling me to go share the gospel with my neighbor, but I can't do that. I know, Lord, you're telling me to do this, but I can't do that. I know, Lord, that, that this, is, this is your command in Scripture, but I can't do that. Your flesh stands in the way, and God is like, what am I, powerless? He's not powerless. He empowers you to do it. We were, we, I, I was at uh, uh, the um, Illinois Baptist State Association meeting this last week bunch of pastors it was supposed to be for like this little lunch or this dinner for youth pastors but i always go and because it's a free meal and i know everybody there and i hang out with them so and most of the people there were pastors say youth pastors but we're all at buffalo wild wings right and we go in there and we're eating and and we you know we're pastors so we're all outgoing and talking to this our server and um can you remember her name now i just remember that uh she gave us her name, and then on her name tag, before her name, it said Queen. And so we, we were calling her Queen whatever, because she said that's how she's referred to. I said, okay. Okay, Miss Queen. And so we're eating. And we come to the end of the meal. And my brother, good friend of mine, Phil Nelson, solid guy, he says, Queen, let me ask you a couple questions. These are hard questions. 
Do you know where you'd go if you died? She answered. Started talking about she'd been a good person to that. And he says, or no, she said she'd go to heaven. Then he asked her, um, Queen, why, if she stood before God, why would he let you in? And that's when she started talking about everything good she's done. And, and Phil launched into a full-blown gospel conversation with that lady, and she sat there and listened to every word he said, walked her through the gospel, hugged her on her way out. She thanked us for coming in. I don't know if she'll ever place her faith in Jesus. But how often do you know exactly what God's telling you to do? My point is, there was me being one of them, 20 pastors there. Two Illinois Baptist Day Association workers. I wonder how many of us, the gospel is running through our mind. How are we going to share the gospel with this lady? Phil put us to shame. This is obedient. Same guy that walked through Chicago carrying a wooden cross. Why do we think our God does not empower us to do exactly what he asks you to do? God will work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. You want to do that which is pleasing in his sight? Use what he's given you that he has empowered you and do it. Don't make excuses. Just do it. Thirdly, God works through Jesus Christ gotta hurry god works through jesus christ all the sanctifying work that god does in our life is through jesus christ every last part of our sanctification is dependent upon our union with jesus christ because our sanctification is through jesus christ in fact as we looked at when we looked at uh, verse 15 a few weeks back we noted that everything in the christian life is through Christ. Through Christ. In fact, we know that we're saved because He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1 3. The word in Christ or in Christ Jesus in Paul's writings alone occurs over uh, occurs 169 times. What a glorious truth, church, that you are united by his spirit to Jesus Christ. Everything that is true of Jesus is true of you. All of his riches are yours to enjoy. You are enabled to do that which is what uh, that which is the Father's will in your life. This is the beautiful picture of adoption. This is why adoption is such a powerful gospel image. You can imagine that 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 you are some poor orphan in Africa who's literally starving, and one day Bill Gates shows up and he adopts you. And not only that, he writes you into his will as his only heir. Do you see the picture? Overnight, the richest of riches men 
and the entire world, all of his riches are yours. Because you're instantly in his family. Church, the riches of Bill Gates will perish. It will one day be gone. But God's riches in Jesus Christ will endure forever. And they are yours in Him. That's the picture of the gospel. You didn't do anything to deserve this adoption. But God through Jesus Christ adopts you. And all the riches in Him are yours. God works through His Son Jesus Christ to accomplish what He will lastly. God and the Lord Jesus Christ get all of the glory. Commentators are divided on on who the words to whom are referencing there in verse 21. They know it's either God or Jesus, but they can't agree on which one. However, the Father and the Son are one, and they both get the glory in our salvation. This is how Revelation puts it. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Salvation is not about us. Salvation is not for our glory. The gospel is not about us. The Christian life that we live is not about us. And it's not for our glory. It's all about the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who gave Himself for our sins. I need you to listen closely to what I'm about to say. If you are not living every single day to glorify God for His great salvation in Jesus Christ, then you are living a life of insignificance. God created you not to glorify yourself, not to please yourself, not to amass wealth, not for the American dream, but God created you so that you would every single day, every minute of every single day, every week, every month, every year, for the rest of your life, give Him glory forever and ever. Amen. That's why we're created. To glorify God. In conclusion, what is neat about this passage of Scripture is that what is true in this passage is true of all of us, no matter what. Listen, God is no matter what equipping us for salvation and God equips us to live for His glory. God is at work in you no matter what. And you may be here this morning and you may be sitting out in that pew and you failed for the 20,000th time you've failed and you hate it. And you've been fighting against a sin or something that besets you and you may feel, God, there's no way you're at work at me. I keep failing. I keep messing up. I don't know what to do, God. You can't be at work in me. Maybe, just maybe, you need to go back and believe something again that you've forgotten all about. That God is at work in you 
right now. Someone once wrote, empty hands I lifted to him, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till my hands could hold no more. And at last I comprehended with my mind so slow and dull that God could not pour out his riches into hands already full. Maybe today you've recognized your need for Christ. If so, I would encourage you to let go of everything that you're holding on to and lay hold of Jesus. He's the treasure that you seek. He is the pearl of great price in which the merchant sold everything that he had to buy, according to Matthew chapter 13. He is the treasure in the hidden field in which a man found and he hid it again. And then he sold all that he had to buy the field, according again to Matthew chapter 13. In Jesus Christ, God has provided everything that you need to be saved from his judgment. Everything. In Jesus Christ, God has given all that is needed for you to live in a manner that's pleasing to Him. And for His glory, He's given you everything that you need to live to glorify God. Make sure that your faith rests in the risen shepherd, Jesus Christ our Lord. Dear friends, believe that God is at work to equip you to do His will. And as the reformer said, soli deo gloria. To God be, to God alone be the glory. What about you this morning? Is this your life? Maybe you've been struggling. Struggling to see that God is working in you. Maybe you just need to set your focus. God, you are working in me. Or maybe he's not. Because he's not going to work in what is not his. Maybe you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation. I'll be standing right down here at the end of this message. If you need prayer, you need to talk. You need to say, hey, can we talk later? You can come down and let me know. I'll be hanging around later too. You can pray right there in your pew. You don't need to come down this aisle. I want to encourage you as we sing this song in just a little bit. Would you be calling out to God that he'd be glorified in your life and that we'd just start trusting in his power because he's empowered us to accomplish his will. Let's pray.